Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 5, Episode 13 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode we unpacked the key factors behind Xavi's downfall at Barcelona, we dissected Atalanta's recent goal rush and we looked in depth at how the enigmatic Eric Roy has moulded Stad Brestois into one of the greatest Ligue 1 underdog stories in recent memory. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive running order of what we discussed and when. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe, hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. Well, there's a lovely backdrop to Rudy Barlow's presence this evening. I feel like Barlow, whenever you've joined the calls previously, you've been facing the other way, but this time we're getting to see more of Madrid than, than just a blank wall in the background. So yeah, really it looks it looks lovely. How are you generally apart from being in yeah such such picturesque surroundings? Yeah, no, well, sometimes I'm uh, in the room. Sometimes I get relegated to the room where I have to uh, have to podcast and there's not such a nice backdrop, but you've got a plant and everything this time, Ali. I'm, I'm good. I was at the Viecas last night to, to witness Rayo Vallecano lose to Sevilla and one of the most unique things I've ever seen, which was Lucas Ocampos being prodded up the derriere by a fan as he was taking a throw in. And yeah, unique event. Never seen that before. That's quite something, Barlow. Yeah, can't say I've ever, yeah, I've ever seen that in Scottish football or in football <laughs> generally. So yeah. Uh, How well, are you doing, Ali? Yeah, that's that that really has taken me by surprise. <laughs> that, <laughs> After that news. Yeah, that, that certainly wasn't in the script. Uh, but yeah, well, I hope Lucas Ocampos is doing is doing okay because yeah that's not a pleasant thing to happen to anyone all, all jokes aside but yes uh, I, I'm well thank you uh, glad that we are now in February glad that the nights are getting lighter I think it was even by about half four quarter to five even five o'clock it was still fairly light in the south side of Glasgow so yeah I'm good the nicer weather the, the longer I say nicer weather it's hardly nicer weather, but the, the longer days anyway are, are certainly <laughs> improving my mood. And yeah, some, some fantastic French football as well has. Yes, yeah, it's, it's got me in high spirits, Barlow. So I think, yeah, let's start with, with Ligue 1. Yeah, we will start in France. The surprise Liga package this time around has come in the form of Stade Brestois, who currently sit third in the table. With more than half the season played, the side from the northwestern tip of France have given themselves a great chance of securing a European spot. Perhaps the most intriguing thread to this story is that of the team's manager, Eric Roy, whose appointment 30 months or so ago raised more than a few eyebrows, 
tell us more about Roy and the exploits of his Stad Brestois side, Ali. Yeah, Balo, it, it really has been remarkable, actually, to watch this Stad Brestois side this season. To give you an idea of the, the sheer extent to which they are defying the odds, were they to qualify for the Champions League, there is a general feeling, a general consensus that they would eclipse what Long did last season, or even what Leicester City did in winning the Premier League in England back in 2016. This is, of course, a club that had spent the, the vast majority of the last two decades in Ligue 2, a club that had yeah, struggled financially in the 90s, was declared bankrupt in the 90s, and essentially had to start again in the depths of the French football pyramid. Now, before we start to, I suppose, fully unpack the club and their recent success, I do just want to highlight one little anecdote. Um, you know I love my anecdotes, Barlow. You might have noticed that the club's full name is Stade Brestois Van Neuf, Stade Brestois 29. The 29 in the club's name actually refers to the number given by the French government to the département, the equivalent, I suppose, of a, a US state of Finisterre, in which Brest is situated. Anyway, getting back to what we're here to talk about more specifically, geographically, there is something quite magical about Stade Brestois' location on the northwestern tip of France. The Stade Francis Le Bleu holds just over 15,000 people, making it the second smallest ground in Ligue, and only Clermont actually have a, a smaller ground. It's a proper old-school ground, the Stade Francis Le Bleu, exposed to the brutal elements of the Atlantic Ocean with an uncovered stand behind one of the goals, which lends further weight, adds another layer, if you like, to the fairy tale. And the stadium, perhaps unsurprisingly, has become a fortress of sorts this season with their only home defeat in the league coming against PSG. And even then, PSG only scored their winning goal in the 89th minute. That solid home form battle has served as the foundation for, yeah, a really quite superb season so far. And yet, at the start of both last season and this season, a lot of people had dressed down as favourites for relegation. Last time out, they flirted quite extensively with the drop zone, but they navigated themselves away from danger with a brilliant run, actually, in the final couple of months of the campaign that saw them finish fairly comfortable, actually, in 14th place. I think they picked up something like 20 points or so from their final 10 games. The optimism fueled by that run towards the end of the season was, however, dashed quite significantly when the club endured a really complicated summer transfer window with a worryingly high turnover of players. In particular, there, there was significant concern about the departure of Frank Onora to Borussia Mönchengladbach. He was a real energetic presence in attack, regularly featuring in the top 10 players in Liga and for key passes, crosses into the penalty area, progressive carries, expected assists, and so to lose a player like him could really have been catastrophic for Brest. He was sold for just €8 million, Euros, a fee which for many didn't fully reflect his importance to the club. And then, yeah, to add insult to injury, you also had the likes of key first-team players in Jean-Kevin Duverne and Aris Belkebla, in bit part but still important players in Noah Fadiga and Christophe Erel all leaving on free transfers. So, yeah, the outlook was 
understandably somewhat bleak. And once again, with one of the smallest budgets in the league and the club still feeling the effects of the fallout from the media pro broadcast debacle, there was this expectation that they would be entrenched in a relegation battle. But Barlow, they've adapted seamlessly to life without Honora et al. Kicking on from the positive end to the previous campaign and finding a real consistency and yeah with 20 games played as you say they sit third in the league and have a real chance of securing Champions League football next season arguably the main driving force behind Brest's newfound success has been their enigmatic coach Eric Roy now Roy should absolutely feature in the conversation about the most considered managers in Liga and he's brought a real sense of cohesion to the club a real collegiate way of working and he's instilled a real collective spirit at the club, all of which is, yeah, it's facilitated a quite extraordinary campaign. Now, Roy's CV makes for really quite interesting reading. So prior to his arrival at Brest last January, he hadn't actually managed another club since he left his post as Nice coach all the way back in 2011. He did, however, go on to spend time as a sporting director at Nice, Long and Watford, all of which I think have really given him a, a quite unique perspective, a unique skill set for a manager. But that said, I, I must admit, Barlow, when Brest appointed Gua at the start of the year, I was not expecting much at all. Now, when we think back to Nantes' disastrous decision to bring in Raymond Dominic from the managerial wilderness a few years ago, or even Laurent Blanc's ill-fated recent spell in charge of Lyon after several years out of the European picture, at least, I think we could probably be forgiven for writing Wa off. It had been, yeah, more than 11 years since he had last been in the dugout, and he was adopting a team bereft of confidence. But yeah, Wa has, has more than proved the doubters wrong. The question to be asked, Barlow, then, is how exactly has he managed to achieve such success with the club? I spoke earlier about how Wa has instilled a real collective spirit at Brest. As a unit, they have so much strength. They are the very definition of a team. The whole is very much greater than the sum of its parts. There are, yeah, there are no individual superstars. There, there doesn't seem to be any inflated egos. And there's a good quote, actually, from Hua, which encapsulates everything he's trying to do at the club. He said, quote, we are moving forward and trying to cultivate a culture of humility and of hard work without forgetting that we can have ambition, unquote. And the players seem to be buying into that approach. So Hua typically sets his side up in a 4-3-3 formation. And from the defence right through to the attack, Gua has yeah, a really solid group of players. You've got in goals Marco Bezo, who feels like he's been around forever, but he's still only 32. He sits in the 89th percentile across Europe's top five leagues for post shots, expected goals, minus goals allowed. And only four goalkeepers in Liga can boast a higher save percentage. In front of him, the captain and youth academy graduate, Brendan Chardonnay, is the embodiment of, of the club's spirit. And values, and he's formed a, a solid central partnership with the 24-year-old Lillian Brassier. Kenny Lala, a, a blast from the past, having once been at Strasbourg and uh, once been a, a bit of a cult hero uh, on FIFA Ultimate Team. Uh, he's been an ever-present in the league on the right side of Brest's defence. In midfield, you've got the experienced Pierre-Lise Melou, who is arguably the team's 
linchpin the team's beating heart. He's such a calming presence, really helping to dictate the tempo of the game from the base of the midfield and enabling his more attack-minded teammates to play with almost total freedom. He sits in the 98th percentile for tackles, the 90th percentile for blocks, the 90th percentile for clearances and the 82nd percentile for progressive passes. Coincidentally, no player has won more tackles or made more blocks in league and this season than Elise Malou. And then in the final third, Roman Del Castillo on the right wing and Jeremy Durand on the left wing have been great to watch, almost operating at times as dual number 10s while still giving the team enough width. Eric Wah has shown excellent man management in getting the most out of his squad with several players improving significantly under his watch and Le Duron and Del Castillo are two of the best illustrations of that. I like both players a lot, Barlow, but I find Del Castillo particularly interesting. So he's a graduate of the esteemed Youth Academy at Lyon and after bouncing from club to club for a few years, he looks really quite settled at the Stade Francis Le Bleu. The potential, I think, has always been there with Del Castillo and while he's never quite fully realised that potential, you can tell he's really enjoying his football this season. So he's in the 93rd percentile for shot creating actions, the 83rd percentile for successful take-ons and the 95th percentile for key passes across Europe's top five leagues. And then specifically in Liga, he sits second for big chances created and top for expected assists. Those numbers absolutely speak for themselves. And when we consider the fact that Del Castillo turns 28 in March, it does feel like we're witnessing him at just about his peak, and yeah, you do feel like he'll be pivotal as we approach the business end of the season. Now, looking again at the team on the whole, back in late October and early November, there was a feeling that Bless Bubble had maybe burst. They had that heartbreaking late 3-2 defeat against PSG that I mentioned earlier, and that was sandwiched in between losses against Monaco and Lille. Their game against Strasbourg just before the November international break was then postponed, meaning that they had to wait three weeks for the chance to get back on track. And prior to that wingless run, they had lost just once in their opening eight games and even topped the table at the end of September. To be fair to them, though, they still gave a really good account of themselves in those losses, especially against PSG. And so perhaps we shouldn't have been so quick to conclude that their time in the spot had maybe been and gone. In any event, the extended break clearly did them a lot of good. They won their next six games in a row, scoring 15 goals and conceding just once in the process before picking up a mightily impressive point away at PSG in the capital at the end of January. So quite simply, the, the manner in which they have bounced back is testament to the work that Eric Wah has done so far and continues to do in the Northwest. Looking ahead, they face Clermont, Marseille, Strasbourg and Le Havre over the next month or so. And I seriously think, based on what we've seen from them so far this this season anyway, that they could go on and pick up at least nine points from that run. They're, they're a fantastic underdog story. So yeah, let's see if they can go on and secure European football under the lights at the characteristic Stade Francis Le Bleu. Okay, I think we will wrap up our deep dive into Stade Brestois. There, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to dial in Michael Jones, who's going to tell us all about the latest goings-on in Italy. We'll be right back. The 
much-anticipated derby d'Italia between title-chasing Internazionale and Juventus didn't exactly turn out to be an all-time classic. In a cagey encounter, the Nerazzurri emerged victorious thanks to an own goal by Federico Gatti. Michael, how significant was this moment in the wider context of the Serie A title race? I think it was extremely significant. I mean, if you just look at the table alone, Inter Milan now have a four-point gap over Juventus with a game in hand, with that game in hand played, that win, obviously, that's seven, and that's with 15 games to go. So still, obviously, a very long way to go in the title race. But I think the manner of them being able to get that victory in what was a game that, although, like you said, it was a cagey encounter, what was quite endearing about the match itself was that it was really played like, even though it was in at the beginning of February, it was played like a real title deciding match. There was that intensity, there was the quality on show, both teams, and maybe not necessarily in terms of the number of chances created, although both teams did have very presentable opportunities on occasion, uh, the intensity at which the game was played. I think one of the main takeaways sort of on social media has been Hakan Chalanoglu's pass. And I'll come on to Chalanoglu in a moment or so. But yeah, that pass, I don't know if you've seen it, Ali, but it was played from around about the halfway line and he's just arrowed it to perfection to Federico De Marco on the left wing. And it's just found its way between Juventus players and the kind of weight on it is superb. So I'd really recommend anybody to... Look at that if you get the chance, because it's one of the best passes you'll see all season. But coming back to the question, it, it's massive because I think maybe that pass in its own right was symbolising the extent, the different extents of quality that these two teams have. I think Inter Milan's season has been characterised by their ability to just absolutely wipe the floor against teams when they played all season. And Juventus is quality has been actually just being able to stay with them, get those plucky results, grind out narrow one-goal victories as opposed to Inter Milan, who aren't just... We've Earlier on the podcast this season, we've discussed that firepower of Marcus Taram and Latoro Martinez, and it was Taram who was pivotal in that Gatti own goal. But you can't remember, this is a team that have kept 14 clean sheets into Milan in... Serie A this season I think it's 16 in domestic competitions and they've only conceded I think it's 10 goals which is incredible when you think of this as a team that's I think many people would associate to be more attacking than defending but Simone Inzaghi is building an absolute monster and I think the more and more games we see this season is it's proving to be no fluke that Inter Milan reached the Champions League final last season and I think what made this so significant was that if you put all those things together, if you put that Juventus weren't expected to be anywhere near the title picture this season, although it's stupid to always rule them out, Juventus's main hope for being in the title race this season has been for Inter Milan maybe getting sucked into, they're still in the Coppa Italia, but maybe getting sucked into the depths of the Champions League this season, although they've got a very tough tie against Atletico Madrid in the round of 16, if they're past that, and I think they'll probably go in just about as favourites because they're one of the best teams on the continent right now, then they will be putting a lot of energy into having a successful Champions League. But Simone Inzaghi is yet to win a title, and that is also a huge priority for Inter Milan 
this season, even though a lot of those players were part of the Conte side that won it a few years ago. And I think what's Juventus would have been hoping for in many extents, to many extents, was for Inter Milan to be as close as they could be. And Juventus didn't just drop points this weekend. It was the weekend before they dropped points to Empoli, who have been struggling for former as of late. They were leading that game to Mother Bandanzi, left a sort of wonderful leaving mark at the club where he scored a goal that proved to be his last as he's just joined Roma. And yeah, I think one of the aspects of this Inter Milan team that's just making them look more and more like title winners is that the quality is not just being, I guess, underrepresented in terms of where it is elsewhere in their squad, apart from that really dynamic attack that they have. But we're seeing the likes of Benjamin Pavard, who is having an absolutely fantastic season since arriving from Bayern Munich. He had some injury problems, but he's slotted in in a, in a fluid right centre-back position, which... I think his naysayers, I don't think he'd always been, I think he'd been quite a polarising figure during his time at Bayern Munich and also in the French national team. And whether Deschamps, for example, I know he switched between a three and a four at the back, but whether he was used as a centre-back or right-back, and that was also the case at Bayern Munich. If you look at his stats over the past two or three seasons, in, his, in the ones around the time they were winning the Champions League, over 90% of the games he's playing at right-back, and then he was constantly being rotated between the two positions. Here at Inter Milan, he seems to have regained that form that made him that World Cup winner, that made him a key player for Champions League winners. And it was him being able to find that position and just slot him in. And as alongside him, he's had Acherbi, who's been absolutely brilliant. Bastoni, we've discussed his quality before. But Chalanoglu scored nine league goals this season, albeit a number of them. I think it's seven of them have been penalties. But I think that's just demonstrated the leadership role he's taken in this team too. And the quality they're displaying all over the pitch and for a team that's shown that ability in a massive game against Juventus and ability to win ugly as well as win super attractively in the way that they've blown away most of these teams, I think underlines those real other key strengths. And Jan Sommer, just to finish on him, you know, Andre Anana's not had the easiest season and I feel like the pylon can be excessive at times and sometimes very easy, but Sommer has slotted into that goal in Inter Milan and he's been absolutely superb and key as a Swiss been to holding that um, amazing record that they've got so far. So yeah, I think it's very hard to criticise Inter Milan at the moment, but it's going to be really interesting to see if anybody can start to catch them, but I'm not too sure they will. Now, Michael, Inter Milan aren't the only Nerazzurri outfit making waves in 2024, Atalanta now find themselves fourth in the table after a stellar performance against Lazio, securing a 3-1 victory on Sunday. The mood in Bergamo is upbeat, with La Dea winning six out of seven games since Christmas. This impressive form also sets them up nicely for a two-legged Coppa Italia semi-final against Fiorentina in March. Much of this success has, however, come without key striker Adamola Lukman, who is, of course, currently representing Nigeria at the Africa Cup of Nations. So, Michael, where have all of Atlanta's goals been coming from? They've been coming from everywhere, to be honest. They, it's been one of the 
I think this has been the most fun Atalanta team to watch under Giampiero Gasparini since that golden team that they had. And it really didn't look like that a few months ago, but he's always been very persistent with the project here in Bergamo and it's really starting to reap the rewards of that. They've gone, like you said, I think it's six out of seven. You can go even further back. I think it's at nine out of 11 wins with a draw included as well and yeah they are just absolutely flying they blew Lazio away you would not believe watching this game that these were two teams that were having a similar or if not same goal in mind which is to at least secure European qualification but ultimately get into the Champions League places and I guess just from a Lazio perspective if you're Bayern Munich looking ahead to that Champions League tie coming up in the near future I think be seriously worried for Lazio and the inept that they showed on display against Atalanta. But coming back to Ladea, I think the goals themselves, I mean, Adam Ola-Luckman, it's important to say, is the top goal scorer for all of them this season. He's also got three assists. He's been a really important player. None of those goals have been penalties either. And he's been showing that brilliance and that tenacity for Nigeria. I think he's really sort of developed like an aggression to his game and he's been key to Nigeria reaching the semi-finals. We'll have to see by the time this podcast episode goes out if they've gone any further. But without him, one of the players we discussed earlier was Charles de Catalare. He has been sumptuous, to say the least, in the last few games. Um, in the game against Lazio, he provided a beautiful chipped ball, which Scalvini headed across to Pasolic. Marco Pasolic, who then did a slight bicycle kick I think more of a bicycle kick than overhead kick to give them the lead Catalari then scored a penalty to put them two goals up and then it was a brilliant run coming in from the right where he's drilled it in at the near post that awareness and I think one of the main critic um, criticisms of him when he struggled in his time at Milan and even struggling to adjust in Bergamo at the start was that inability to sort of show that explosiveness and ability to just drive past players but I think it's becoming more and more clear a lot of his game is very much you know what goes on in his head he's brilliant at finding space on the pitch he always looks like he's in absolutely loads of space and his touches can just take him so far away from defenders that normally they wouldn't for players in the same position and then it's just there's a good article I saw on the Athletic recently about players utilising the near post finish, send out sort of send, waiting for the goalkeeper to put their weight the wrong way. And he's another player who on his left foot loves doing that from the right-hand side. It's some great display against Lazio where he's able to just drive that ball in. But it's not just been to Catalare, um, Alexi Maranchuk, the Russian midfielder. He's been really prominent, especially in the last few wins. He's got a few goals so far. This year as well, and Town Coop Miners and Edison have just formed this absolutely formidable partnership in the midfield for Atalanta. I think, you know, you're looking at that being one of the best midfields in Italy at the moment. Coop Miners has always been a player who can get a bit too sucked into the all action aspects of a game when he does have brilliant ball carrying and ball playing skills. And Edison, I think, has just taken that bit of responsibility off of him a bit and his sort of combative figures in Serie A have been really good this season whilst he's also demonstrated some really good on-ball ability and that's why he's been heavily linked with moves to the Premier League and I think he'll be one of the most in-demand players so far this summer. But there's also sort of other unsung heroes throughout the squad as well. Emil Holm, he's a 30, 20, I almost said a 13-year-old, a 23-year-old Swedish wing-back. He's playing on the right side 
of their midfield for them. He's been great. Marco Karnaseki has come in in goal, another 23-year-old. Um, he's taken the place of Juan Musso, and he looks like he's going to be holding on to that position for the foreseeable future as well. He's slotted in really, really well. Um, but yeah, I think all signs are looking really good. I think it, it goes without saying for me that now they're a team that I make absolute favourites to take that fourth spot in Serie A this season. This is even without El Bilal Torre um, just returning to fitness and Gianluca Scamacca, who's had a bit of a difficult time. He's still scored six goals in eight league starts so far this season, but he's not been a big part of the plans, but could still have an important role to play, especially when European football for them is back on the horizon as well, but they have the benefit of joining in from the round of 16 as opposed to 32. So, yeah, I, I think everything looks really bright for Atalanta. I think they've got a really exciting second half of the season. And I think that big push is cementing what could be maybe the second golden generation, although that's very early days. But what would certainly get them on that track is getting them back into Champions League football, which it looks like they could be on course to achieving. Lovely stuff, Michael. Now, in our previous episode, we discussed Daniele De Rossi's appointment as Roma's manager, he coincidentally has led them to victory in all three league games, including a recent win against his former boss, Claudio Ranieri. Now, Ranieri is still adored at 72, but he faces challenges, as it's been argued that his inexorable charm hasn't always been reflected in the performances of his struggling Cagliari side. So, Michael, does Ranieri have any magic dust left to sprinkle on his team and guide them to Serie A survival? You can never rule it out, can you? I think what he might be relying on some other managers or dodgy owners find um, magic dust to help them evade relegation this season. And I think that's one of the fortunate or fortuitous reasons that they do have that glimmer of hope for staying up this season is that we discussed on the last episode the issues surrounding Hellas Verona, Udinese are on an awfully long winless run. Empoli have just lost their star attacker and Salernitana are in a world of trouble again, another team on a huge unbeaten run. But yeah, it's been a pretty miserable start to the year for Cagliari. They've lost three league games on the bounce now. There's been sort of very little forms of excitement going forwards for them. I think their attacking lineup just really really hits that home if you look at the three players that they've kind of been relying on to try and get them goals they've got a 35 year old Leonardo Leonardo Pavaletti they have got a 33 year old Gianluca Lapadula who will actually turn 34 by the time this podcast comes out and then they've got a trainer Patania known as the bull who is maybe not as old as them I think he's only like 28 but he's only scored one goal. They've got eight goals combined between them so far this season, but there's been a huge lack of creativity in many of their performances. They also brought in the likes of Aldo Shamorodov earlier in the season. It's meant to be a bit more of a sort of refreshing, more dynamic attacking threat and not being able to utilise him at all. And I think that's been one of Cagliari's struggles so far this season is they've struggled to find a system where they can try to remain solid in games, something that they haven't been doing recently, whilst offering a creative threat. I think the only creative threat has come from Zito Labumbo. We mentioned Luckman and his importance to Nigeria AFCON. Well, they just knocked out Angola and Labumbo has been a key player for them, a 21-year-old with three goals and a couple of assists. And he's been really exciting and definitely a player to watch for 
um, Cagliari going forward. But I think other than that, they've really struggled to get sort of young players in. And I think what that has done in the way that Ranieri's tried to compromise the system is that I think they've just lost that confidence to even be solid in defence. And we really saw that on display versus Roma. Ranieri's a manager who's certainly prided himself and his team's been able to defend from set pieces. That's certainly not been the case. Two of the goals were conceded directly from set pieces. They also conceded a penalty in that game against Roma um, from a set piece. And Ranieri quite jokingly remarked after the match that he was happy that um, De Rossi did so well and it proved um, and and Cagliari proved a nice warm-up for tougher tests to come. And you just think to yourself, like, if you are a Cagliari fan and you're hearing those kind of words, like, as much as, as impossible as Ranieri is not to love, those kind of words must just send shudders down your spine in terms of the ambition he has to maybe keep the team up. But Ranieri and Cagliari have a very special connection. It was Cagliari that was fundamental to the um, formation of Ranieri's managerial career. He had his first stint there between 1988 and 1991. He led Cagliari from Serie C1 to Serie A before taking uh, the Napoli job before the Fiorentina job where he had loads of success in the 90s and yeah he's had this actual quite special return since going they took over them midway through last season they were ninth in a division that they were expected to be more dominant in and he led them fifth ultimately getting them up for the playoffs where they subsequently had this trophy stolen in the playoff celebrations afterwards and Ranieri has stressed that this will be his last job and I think regardless I think if they go down you would certainly think it's the end of Ranieri at Cagliari and I think if they stay up, I think they'll probably also look to move on to new pastors. So he's got this opportunity and you'd like to think that that's going to be a bit of a motivating factor. And the, the, the final thing I'd say about Cagliari is it's quite interesting. It's important to stress that this is a team that have been stagnating Italian football for years upon years now. And even, you know, when a team goes down and they often come back, as we've seen with Genoa, it's given them that chance for a rebirth and a bit of a restructuring. That's really not happened here with Cagliari. They've still got a very aging squad. They managed to get up, not really through a succession plan. So when that's going to come, it's going to be a really interesting topic to see. But until then, they're not a very interesting team to watch. And they will just solely have to rely on the experience and not just the coach, but the players to try and get them through this and I guess the misfortunes of the teams around them. Absolutely, Michael. Well, yeah, that was all extremely interesting, very comprehensive as always. I certainly learned a thing or two, or maybe even three, and I'm sure that the listeners did as well. We are going to take a quick break there. We're going to dial Rudy Barlow back in and yeah we're going to run the rule over some major developments in La Liga we'll be right back since we last spoke Xavi Hernandez has announced his resignation from the Barcelona job after another frankly ridiculous match which they lost 5-3 at home to Villarreal. It was the first time since the 1960s that Barcelona had conceded so many at home in the league. While they are clearly in a tricky period of their history, we are only about seven months on from praising Xavi for winning La Liga with a rock-solid defence. So, Barlow, how did Xavi lose his way and why does it raise existential questions for Barcelona and Juan Laporta? 
Yeah, it's been a topsy-turvy few months, to say the very least, at Barcelona. And and Xavi, it's it's such a hard one to analyse. And I think we've kind of touched on this in, in various parts, and I'm sure I'll, I'll maybe drive over the same ground as I as I put the bus, the Chavinetta, which was the old name for the Xavi bus, uh, put, drive the Chavinetta over Xavi's uh, decaying man- managerial mandate. I was trying to find another word for body there that was sounded a little bit less graphic but but yeah I mean Xavi and this Barcelona spell he's he's kind of lost the run of himself to to coin a more kind of yeah uh, simple phrase he's completely lost his his kind of rationale in press conferences and I think a lot of things have gone wrong to send him over the edge but those press conferences in particular tell the story of a man who is is no longer certain of kind of where his north is, that has lost the will to do the job essentially, that feels he's been treated unfairly, and we'll kind of come on to that in a little bit. But essentially it's just frustration has got the better of him. It's a it's a man and a and a idea of Chavi um that we had that essentially was that he would be the kind of the second coming and as much as I think myself and, and many people tried to warn or try to at least set their expectations that he wouldn't be the next Pep Guardiola, there was an expectation for Xavi that successful or not successful, he would restore Barcelona to its roots in terms of style, in terms of kind of a, an ambition and a way of playing. And last season, he sacrificed that for results. And I think most people understood that and quite rightly so. Barcelona needed, needed to win that league, uh, COC, regardless of what else happened and once he's tried to kind of change that, as we kind of mentioned in previous podcasts, it's not quite happened. And and yeah, it's it's a it's almost as if he stopped thinking before he speaks in these press conferences because these days they're they're full of contradictions. Um, just in kind of the two or three press conferences since he announced his departure or when he announced his departure, in case of one of them, he's saying different things about exactly why he's leaving and and. One of those things is that kind of yeah okay the he he said he will leave if the results aren't good enough if they're not competing for titles and it looks like they're not going to compete for the La Liga title they're probably not going to win the Champions League in all likelihood and um, but he also said that he's leaving because of the pressure because it's kind of got to him and he says that this job isn't worth it he says I get criticism I get torn down if I do this if I do that regardless of which way I decide or go uh, the pressure always there to kind of drive the knife into me and and that there's no kind of recompense for this job that there's no no kind of break there's no respite from from that kind of criticism um, and yet at the same time this is a guy who's probably been given an easier ride from the press than most other managers I would say in the last kind of 10-15 years it's a, a guy who's been in the job two and a half years nearly now it's a guy who, yeah, over the course of that kind of period of time has never really consistently managed to implement the style of play, not just of Barcelona, but a an identity, a style of play that was kind of consistent for this Barcelona side. So, so yeah, there's a lot of things that have gone wrong for, for this Xavi team and this Xavi mandate. And we kind of look towards last season, we've mentioned kind of the Busquets exit is a big hole that wasn't filled Dembele's exit as a big kind of part of he was one of the players that Xavi kind of really worked with that he rescued kind of thing I kind of think from the 
yeah the real kind of criticism as well from and being the kind of public villain Gavi as well a player that before he was placed in, in that four-man midfield last season Barcelona didn't really have the key or didn't really kind of have an idea of how they wanted to play if you take him out you take away a lot of pressing a lot of work rate uh somebody that is very kind of um yeah, aggressive and, and, and adds something to this Barcelona side that they don't have in other players. So you, that change of style, that change of players, the lack of pieces to do so. He never wanted Joao Felix, who, who came in. Um, uh, and that lack of identity is ultimately kind of what's done for him along with those results. I think if this Barcelona side, based on young players, based on 16, 17-year-olds, had been playing brilliant football this season and still were kind of 8, 10 points behind Real Madrid as they are, then it would have been a different story. I think people would have been okay and said, right, we're building towards something. There's a really good article by Albert Blayas and Sat, who's a very good journalist regarding Barcelona matters and generally tactically. And uh, this was about a year or so ago, maybe it was just after the Xavi uh, appointment, but he kind of, he wrote this piece and said that Xavi needs to work out essentially because there aren't any other options. And if Xavi can't restore the style, if Xavi can't handle the press, if he can't move the club in the right direction, who can? He was kind of this infallible figure when he came in. And he is, in theory, again, after Pep Guardiola, after Johan Cruyff, the guy who holds these principles closest to his heart. And, and that's kind of been torn apart. Not only the image of Xavi as this infallible figure, the image of Xavi as somebody who's kind of tactically kind of this this genius or somebody that knows how to handle these games because he's he's been in it he he's done these things on the pitch himself uh but but yeah all of these kind of things that we held or believed that Chavi might be I think there's a difference especially between the way he's built up the way that a lot of people regard him and the way that kind of you you try to stop yourself thinking of him as because you don't know how he's going to be as a manager and and part of that speaks to the way that we and the media and myself included build up people. Um, it's also partly, I think, we speak about Xavi in that sense as well. These contradictions, the pressure, the press, the fact that he's having, had an easier ride, but also still having a really tough ride. I think there's a lot of uh, truth in what he says in the way that he says that Barcelona really need to reflect on the way that they treat people, the way that the diaspora kind of doesn't appreciate Ernesto Valverde, Luis Enrique, Pep Guardiola, all of these people when they are there, they they get criticized, they get torn apart. And then when they go, they realize how good they had it kind of thing. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, there's a lot of kind of truth in the things that he says. But but yeah, if you ultimately look at why Xavi is leaving, regardless of what he says, and if you ultimately look at why there was talk of him getting the sack before he decided to jump, before he was pushed, pushed essentially... It's because they didn't have a direction. They didn't have an identity. And if you don't have results, to put it in kind of a, a very Mourinho-ist term is the way I kind of always analyze Mourinho. If you're not getting results and you don't have a, a clear kind of style of play that's enjoyable, if the games are boring to watch, if there's no kind of basics there, then you are going to come under pressure for this job. And, and that's ultimately what's done for him. And simultaneously again to kind of contradict myself and to play into those shabby contradictions I think he's been dealt an incredibly hard hand and I think this Barcelona side is not at the level of the players that they've had for the last 15 20 years even since kind of Laporta first came in so you look at that and, and you say yeah it's very hard to analyze where Xavi is necessarily at fault and, and where it's kind of the fault of the club and the situation that they're in 
But this idea that Joan Laporta came in with was the idea of a virtuous cycle. So you activate these economic levers, you sell off part of the club's um, assets, you get the short-term money in that allows you to speculate, invest, build a team for the next kind of five, five, six years or so, but also start winning again and start kind of putting Barcelona back in that echelon, back in that kind of uh, center stage where the likes of Real Madrid are, where the likes of Manchester City are. And then you attract the sponsors, you attract the money, the money comes back in. And that kind of cycle of winning kind of keeps kind of replenishing the stocks of money for Barcelona and allows them to come out of this situation. But now with the loss of Xavi, with the loss of kind of all of the things that I've kind of mentioned there, his pull as well as a manager, you look at the likes of Gundogan, Lewandowski, uh, Lucas Bergfall, who's a 17-year-old Swedish teenager, elected to go to Spurs instead of Barcelona. And apparently the loss of Xavi was a factor in that. It's different if you've got kind of a, a reasonable manager, I'm sure whoever comes in will be of some somewhat uh, good status. But if Xavi, one of the greatest midfielders ever, is talking to you as a midfielder and telling you about all his ideas and what he wants to do with you, it's a different kind of pull to to compare it to somebody else. Um, and who comes in next? And and the names that have been flying around, there's been a lot of names flying around, uh, tells you that those stylistic questions... Barcelona maybe aren't wedded to a particular style right now. And and whereas before that was the thing that Koeman was criticised for, that was the thing that Valverde was sacked for, essentially, the, the lack of aesthetic, the lack of kind of a a strong style of play. If that that seems to be gone in terms of what Barcelona are looking at right now. I mean, the names mentioned most prominently right now are Sergio Concechao of Porto, um, who is a deco and, you guessed it, Jorge Mendes, man. Um, and then you've got the likes of uh, Hansi Flick. Uh, Jurgen Klopp's obviously been mentioned. I doubt they could get him, but Thomas Tuchel, Julian Nagelsmann, Laporta seems to be edging towards kind of a more German style or school of football. Deco seems to be more going in a different direction to that. But none of these are are people that really have links to Barcelona. And I think that's a, a pretty dramatic change because previously the received wisdom and history kind of to be honest is that people that haven't played for Barcelona haven't done very well in this job um, and and yeah it, it, that short list as I say is kind of symptomatic of it and and if you're kind of casting around for, for managers that aren't necessarily going to fit that style then it does all come down to results and uh, more than anything I think the, the overall damaging factor of this Xavi exit the overall damaging factor of the way the season has gone is it helps to kind of destroy the Barcelona myth. And so the Barcelona myth, I, I mean, in sense of kind of myth building and, and getting kind of a, an atmosphere and an image of your club out there that we are Barcelona, we play this style of football. We're going to trust the youngsters, trust La Masia, and no matter how true or not it is, you always have to be able to kind of sell that to people in a certain sense. And you compare that to Real Madrid, who have spent the last five years, and I think it's one of the things that Carlo Ancelotti is very good um, at doing is Real Madrid build this myth of oh we never give up we have these comebacks these insane comebacks where the team that's classiest un club senor uh, a club that's kind of at the top of the tree and the elite of everything it's it's the highest of the high and regardless of whether it's true or not for both Barcelona and Real Madrid Real Madrid have been selling that myth and that's why Jude Bellingham is there that's why Kylian Mbappe is probably going to end up there it's why Aurelien Chouameni selected Real Madrid over the likes of Liverpool 
And and yeah, that's the kind of contrast with Real Madrid, who have invested in a project of of young players right now. It's pretty stark. And uh, and yeah, it leaves Barcelona kind of paddling without a rudder in the middle of the ocean. Diego Simeone has been delivering masterclasses in how to take on Real Madrid. Now, Real Madrid have lost two games this season, both to Atletico Madrid, and they've won just once across the 420 minutes they've played. The winner for that one came in the 116th minute. Diego Simeone has lost just eight of his 22 games against Ancelotti, but is there anything in this good record this season beyond the fact they have the best player in Spain in Antoine Griezmann? Wow. Yeah, there's, a, there's multiple factors. I mean, in this, and I'll be will be swifter about this than I was in my last answer. But but yeah, Real Madrid. Look, I mean, the defensive issues are huge. You have Rudiger there, but Nacho has been the one that's come in now that David Alaba is out for the rest of the season. Militao is probably still at least a month, a month and a half away from returning to fitness. So you have Nacho there, who again has this reputation of always being the guy that does the job, that shows up. He's solid regardless of where and when you put him in. Um, and that's not been him this season. He's been pretty poor over the last month or so. And, and that's a big worry for Real Madrid. Um, I, I think those defensive numbers against Atleti in particular, I think it's 11 goals they've conceded to Atleti across four meetings. Five of those have been aerial. Um, five of those have been headers. And you look at the game against uh, Atleti on Sunday night as we're speaking. And and yeah, it was 25 crosses I think Atleti put in. So that's one of the biggest issues in terms of how Real Madrid defend Atleti, defend this side. And going into the Champions League, I look at Benjamin Sesko for RB Leipzig. That could be a real area of exploitation for, for the German side. That's been an issue. You look at kind of the rotations in midfield, they've never really had a settled midfield. And so I think that perhaps contributes a little bit to it. But in general, I think they press pretty well, but those injuries are, are bound to have an impact. And in, in the area especially... I think that's where it's got them. Looking back at the games where Real Madrid have struggled this season, and curiously, three of their four draws um, have come, in La Liga have come against 4-2-3-1 formations and those kind of two sitting midfielders in front of a defence. But if you look at the games where they've actually struggled, the games in terms of where their plan hasn't worked as opposed to them not actually winning the games, it's back threes. And one of the strengths of this Real Madrid side is that they tend not to have a number nine. We've spoken ad nauseum about Bellingham and the lack of number nine and how well Ancelotti's done. But one of the things that he exploits best, uh, Bellingham, Vinicius, Rodrigo, Brian Diaz, all of their attackers essentially, apart from one of them, which I'll come on to, is that gap between the fullbacks and the centre-backs and, and being able to find that kind of quartet of space, that quadrant of space between fullback, centre-back and midfielder. Um, and when you have a back three, just there's less of it there. There's less space there to exploit. Those runs are harder to fit in. They're harder to get past the the back three when you have a more crowded box area. So, so yeah, I think that's something that Atleti and other sides have done really well at doing. Um, and on the other hand, I think as well that kind of number nine plus uh kind of ten sort of come winger, somebody that will come inside. In this case, Griezmann. And Morata for their defensive side of things is is an issue too. Um, if you give kind of wingers, you go, go up against Danny Carvajal and Ferland Mendy, they're not going to get much joy. Mondi is 
maybe the best defender according to Carlo Ancelotti in terms of being taken on. Carvajal is very solid and has been much more aggressive this season. But if you give them a wing back as well, moving on to that kind of back free system idea, it's not a natural. They're not necessarily going to be taking them on. They might be running beyond them. They might be crossing in front of them, but they're not necessarily going to be taking those fullbacks on. And so I think that creates a bit of space too. And uh, and yeah, if you look at Hosselu, who's the the different different striker, he's the alternative option for this Real Madrid side. He's had a lot of joy against Atleti, and I think when he's come on, they've looked a lot better against Los Colchoneros. And I think part of the reason for that is he does give you that big man in the middle. It almost allows Bellingham, Vinicius and Hoslu or Rodrigo or Brahim Diaz, if you sub in one of those uh, for that trio, to go kind of man for man against that back three and to to kind of move them about, create a bit more space and give them an option to throw it into the box. So so yeah, if, if you're looking at the recipe to beat Real Madrid this season, so far, Cholo Simeone has shown that it is a back three. And those are the things that Real Madrid struggle most with. Well, I will keep that in mind. Barlow, if for, for whatever reason I end up managing a La Liga. In case Kelly need to beat Real Madrid this season. Well, you never know. Barlow, we've had a very good January transfer window, although we were brought back to reality with a 1-0 draw away at Motherwell on Saturday night. I was actually at an engagement party at Fur Park, Motherwell's stadium on Saturday night as well. So uh, there we are, a little name Want drop. to be revealed. For, uh, oh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was it was a very enjoyable Saturday evening. Anyway, I've digressed there. I don't know how we've gone from Real Madrid and Diego Simeone's masterclasses to, to Motherwell Football Club, but alas, that is the, the weird and wonderful ways of the Road to Nowhere podcast. Okay, I think on that quite brilliant note, we will... Draw this episode to a close. Barlow, it's been a pleasure as always. Michael Jones, it's been a pleasure as always. And you, dear listener, it's been a pleasure as always. Until next time, stay safe and stay well. Goodbye.